This is the Talent Talks podcast from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. I'm Alan Caesar. In the Wicked studio with me today is Douglas Muir. He graduated from Embry-Riddle in 1984 with a bachelor's degree in aeronautical science. He was a pilot for 20 years, but left the industry and found a new passion as an entrepreneur. He has built several multi-million dollar companies from the ground up and taught entrepreneurship at University of Virginia. He's currently CEO of Muir & Associates, an operations management and private equity firm. He has his MP- MBA and is pursuing a doctorate in business administration. Douglas, thank you very much for coming to campus. Oh, it's, it's fantastic to be here, Alex. Uh, what brings you here today? So I, I had the, the pleasure of getting a phone call, the first one in 35 years, uh, from Donald, who uh, works in, at Embry-Riddle in uh, kind of the alumni relations, if you will, and he was going to be up in uh, New York City. So I invited him out for lunch on Wall Street, and when I met with uh, when I met with him and learned about what you were doing here at my university, as I like to call it, uh, it, it literally blew my mind. And so he he invited me down, and we literally got on our cell phones and scheduled a trip, uh, probably about the two weeks. And and so yesterday I came to the university for about twelve hours, and and just I can't tell you how excited I am about what you all are doing here. Yeah, uh, so my very basic understanding of a private equity firm is that it's a company with a pool of money to invest in startup businesses. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so you've been doing this a while, uh, for a while, so help me out a little bit. Can you go a little deeper for me? Sure, so um, when I was flying airplanes, it's a good job, right? It's uh, You get 11 days off. I mean, uh, you worked back when I was flying, uh, you worked a total of about 11, maybe 15 days. Uh, the money was good. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And I kind of hit it right in 84. Uh, I was 92. I was um, I was flying and uh, my then wife had called me up. She's a flight attendant and our phone bill was through the roof. Back then we didn't have cell, cell phones. So I came up with a concept that I could buy millions and millions of minutes on a 60 day float at a reduced rate, which I could. So AT&T was selling it for 29 cents a minute. I bought it for 11 and was selling it for 14, only to pilots and flight attendants. Well, the concept took off. And uh, I ended up selling that company two years later to AT&T for an undisclosed check amount, which was pretty large. I was really bit by the entrepreneurship. I knew I really didn't want to fly airplanes anymore, and and I wanted to do just the entrepreneurship stuff. So I took that check, and I went and I bought a train station in Charlottesville, Virginia, where I was living because I was a captain out of Washington, D.C., and I took that check, bought a train station, refurbished it, and brought in a restaurant called Wild Wing Cafe. So I'm, I'm one of the starting and founders of Wild Wing Cafe. We built up 39 of those, franchised it, and sold it to another private equity firm. So now I have a bigger pot of money. And now I'm totally in love with entrepreneurship. So I came up with a concept, and I revolutionized the insurance industry in something called subrogation. I invented this software that locked out my competition so the insurance companies could only use me. And I came up with another concept, and, and I needed pretty deep pockets for that. And I went to Goldman Sachs. It's that little bank up in New York, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they funded me, and they fell in love with what I was doing. And they came in, and they said, hey, listen, you know, we're going to buy you out. And I said, well, I'm not for sale. And they put a check on the table, and I said, when do you want me to leave? And so I took that check, and that's when I started my own private equity firm. So now I had a big pot of money. 
and I didn't have to ask for funding, people to come in. Normal private equity firms, you'll start off with a pot of money from investors, whether institutional or private investors, and they put it in this pot. You make an LLC out of it, a company, and then you invest it and you return five, 10 years, whatever it may be. But then you're under SEC, right? The Securities and Exchange Commission. And then FINRA, which is the law-abiding people of the SEC, they actually execute the laws. So if you're a private-owned private equity firm, or as we call it, a family-run, I'm not under any type of disclosures. It's my money, I can do whatever I want. Does that make sense? Yeah. So what I did then is I started coming up with concepts and I would business plan them out and go to bigger private equity firms saying, if I could achieve this, would you buy this out? Because I always wanted an exit and a return on my money. And I did that 10 times. And I had 10 different companies and 10 different exits and you know a lot of great successes, a lot of heartaches and failures. And, and then when I was about 50, I'm 58 now, when I was about 52 or three, I just woke up one day and said, I got 7,000 employees, five companies, two buildings. And I was like, what am I doing? And I looked at my wife, I said, I'm out, we're selling everything. And we ended up moving up to uh, New York City. It was really cool. And so we've been up there for a few years, having a lot of fun. Excellent. So uh, uh, you've taught a course on presentation strategies for entrepreneurs, and presumably you know how to make the best case for a company. You've done this a few times, right? Right. Um, So when someone is pitching to you, how do you determine if they're giving you an honest assessment of their presentation? So, you know, that's a great question, and and that's why the company started. So I was approached by the University of Virginia, which is, you know, is a – it's a very prestigious school. It's a great school. I love them. And um, uh, we won the NCAAs. I thought I'd just throw that in there in basketball. Um, but the dean of the engineering school, knowing that he saw me speak at Darden, which is the business school, and I used to speak a lot in Charlottesville because I was the guy who developed Main Street. And he asked me if I'd be interested in creating an entrepreneurship program inside the engineering school since I had the aeronautical science. Now, when I was going through aeronautical science in the 80s, early 80s, it was kind of half engineering half flight. It was it was really difficult. There was a lot of math. Uh, I don't think they have that anymore. I think they broke that off. So the engineering school was interested in my, my analytics type of style and business. And so I created an entrepreneurship program, but they had to send me back for my MBA. So I got my MBA and I went and I started teaching. I developed and I was wondering why I would look at 400 companies a year, literally 400 pitches a year, and I would fund four. So that ratio is very small. Yeah. And what I was learning is that the pitches were bad. They weren't explaining. They were too long. There was too much text. There wasn't enough depth. So I created a class called Presentation Strategies for Entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like three sections. They'd come in and I'd show them how to come up with an idea. Now, these are engineers. And you could imagine the ideas that these guys came up with and girls. It was awesome. And then from the idea, I would use this thing called a business model canvas, which I'm considered an expert in, on how to start a company by using an iterative type of flow, like a changing. My class was the only class that if you got it wrong, you got extra credit, right? Because <laughs> you want to fail and you want to fail forward fast. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so we go through the business model canvases and there's nine boxes. So they would pitch the first box. And then they would pitch the first and second box. Then we'd pitch the first, second, and third box. By the time they were done with 15 weeks, they had a full-fledged, thought-out company. And they've pitched almost 15 times as me, as their Shark Tank professor. This class went through the roof. Everybody wanted in. We were, we were discovering stuff. Two companies now went out. One just got a half a billion in funding. But I would bring in three venture capital investor friends of mine 
from all around the country, and that would be their final. And they would pitch to these guys. Now they're all nervous, right? Yeah. And they would pitch, and these and the funders were like, "Oh my, God, I want to fund that. I want to do that. I want to do that." And the kids would always say to me, "You know, Professor Muir, they're, they're nothing compared to what you did to us for 15 weeks." So it became very popular. From there, I created another class that you will see called Startup Operations for Entrepreneurs. So now you have a million dollars, you're a kid, you got a great startup. How do you run this company for the next five years? Do you do an exit or do you keep it? And I would teach them how to do the day-to-day -day operations, which is really the key thing. The fun stuff stops. Now you're running day-to-day. It's a little more difficult. And then when you get larger, 100 employees, 1,000 employees, then it gets really different. You know, it's not as, as fun as the startup part. So I would teach them these two classes, and then they would have full-fledged companies and know how to run them. So what are some of the, uh, you've gotten all these pitches, you reject so many of them. What are some of the red flags that you look for? The red flags, and that's a, that's a great question. Never go to a person that has a lot of investing education as one and experience and say, this has never been done before, number one, because we're going to find it and then you're going to look like an idiot. Okay. That's number one. Number two, say these are very conservative numbers, right? Conservative to what? I want you to take those conservative numbers, cut them in half and now see if you can survive. If you can't survive, then get out, right? Because they, they always come in with very conservative numbers and they don't do this simple thing and it's called customer discovery. Let me give you an example. Whenever I come up, I came up with a, with a concept. I sold a company. I started a company there, as you can see, called Credit Justice Services. It was the third largest credit repair company in the United States. One year before I even opened it up, I would go to these things, and I created it called Lunch and Learns. So I'd go to mortgage brokers, and I'd say, if you could change one thing, what would that be? Right? Or my famous, if I gave you a magic wand and I gave you three wishes, what would those be? They were all saying the same thing. It all had to do with credit inaccuracies and being able to correct it. So guess what I did? I put on a PowerPoint, I invented a software, and I said, here's the credit, here's your inaccuracy, and I can remove it 79% of the time because I did my data, and I did this for 1,000 people. Now you come to an investor like me, and you say, I interviewed 5,000 mortgage brokers, I interviewed 1,000 potential end user clients, this is what I found out by using these numbers, this is the money I'm gonna make. Now I look at you and say, how much money do you want? Do you see the difference between that pitch that I just gave you and the other pitch of coming in saying, well, this has never been done before, this is disruptive. Disruptive is Google. Anything other than that is just kind of modified. And modified is good, I'll invest in modified, but don't come in and say you're disruptive. So you need to come in very educated. That is, that's the key to success, and that's what I teach at the, at the universities. That's excellent. Now, uh, so, you're an associate. Um, looks for opp opportunities in sectors where the delivery of valuable goods and services has process and cost inefficiencies. That's what it says on your website, right? So if you're trying to explain that to somebody that you just met or you know, sitting next to in an airplane, uh, do you have a, sort of a go-to example to illustrate that? I'm gonna give you a great example. So uh, I started a chain of restaurants yeah. called Bella's, and it's, it's uh, my wife's name. <clears throat> She's from Rome, Italy. And I did the customer discovery. I found a defunct restaurant. I put a picnic table in the middle. I flew my mother and father-in-law in from Rome, Italy. I got a chef, and Mama would talk to my wife in Italian. She'd translate it, and we would make it. 
right? We'd make the dishes and then we would feed the people and they'd have to give us an honest assessment. For the first two weeks, we got our butts kicked because Roman Italian is totally different than Sicilian, which we're yeah. used to Sicilian. Uh -huh. well, so thank God I did that. So I would iterate and I did some different stuff. And by the time we were done after six weeks, those six weeks, we were we had the ability of winning 98% of the time. People were saying, this is the best food I ever had. Then I opened up instant success, right? So I had this gentleman come and I hear in Charlottesville, Virginia, right on Main Street, across the street from my train station. And I hear my uh, head server say to me, New Yorker, table 23. Now that's a bad thing because all New Yorkers are a pain in the butt, right? I'm from New York, I can say that. So I go over and he goes, hey, Bison. He goes, this is the best in a couple explicitives food I've ever had. I was like, hey, where are you from? Sounds like you got a New York accent. He goes, I'm, I'm from uh, Manhattan. And his name was uh, Richard Rosenblatt. And I was like, what do you do? He goes, I'm a stockbroker. And so he gave me his card. He goes, if you're ever in New York City, I'll take you to the New York Stock Exchange. And he gave me a card. And I'm like, you can't get on the New York Stock Exchange. But anyway, I was in New York about four weeks later. I said, hey, Dick. I said, it's Paisan from Charlottesville. He's like, Paisan, come to 20 Broad Street. So I take a taxi to 20 Broad Street. I get out, and I'm in front of the New York Stock Exchange. And I'm like, that SOB, he just lied to me. Right? He's putting me, he's, he's, uh, he's kidding me. And I looked at the building to the next to the little New York Stock Exchange. I look up and it says Rosenblatt Securities. It was his building. And I'm like, oh, oh my God. I get up on the elevator. I go up to the 24th floor. I get out and he's standing there. Hey, boys on. Right? <laughs> and I'm like, who are you? And he has pictures of him with every president all the way up to Obama. So to forward ahead two years, I get a call, I go to New York. He says, listen, we're having a little bit of a problem. We need some help because the New York Stock Exchange is decreasing. A lot of stocks are be going electronically. Our price points now are dropping radically. So we need, we need help. I've read your bio. I thought you were just a restaurant guy. I see what you do. So I went in there and he hired me on on a year contract. And I went in there and I needed to turn the place around. And so I went in there as a CFO, COO, and I looked at all their business lines they had. I gave them actual numbers of what they were making. He thought the New York Stock Exchange was making the most money. He was correct. The top line revenue was absolutely the most, but the bottom line return was only 3%. Actually, investment banking was at 47%. So when you, when you can come into a company, strip it down to its skivvies, build it back up, and look at things only on a number base and on an employee base, I rated every employee at 75 of them, either an A, B, or C, then you're able to find out, okay, this is the problem, this is the solution, and then you have an execution plan. And so that's what Muir & Associates does. We come in, we look at the problem, we come up with a solution, and we do an execution plan. So you've developed businesses in a variety of industries, from restaurants, software development, finance, insurance. Uh, what's the common ground that uh, you sort of developed? Like what, how, how do you work in all those different sectors? Right, so the sectors are... They're, they're, they're not connected in any way, as you can tell. Right? They're totally different. The common ground, though, is the way you run a business. And so let me give you an example. Um, let's use credit justice services. So credit justice services helped correct inaccuracies on credit reports. And back in the mid-2000s, after 2008, we became very popular, as you can imagine, because everybody was destroyed. Yeah. So I went in there and I systemized this process so that a normal paralegal could work 200 files in any other company around the United States that was in credit repair. 
my company with the technology that I had by using my IT company in Calcutta, India that I owned to develop the software, one paralegal could work 1147 files a month. Wow. So what could I do with that extra money? And the consistency is give it back to the employees. When you give it back to the employees, your, your, your turnover ratio or churn, as we call it, mm. will decrease. An example of this is also in the restaurant industry. I gave medical, dental, eye insurance, one week paid vacation, and a gym membership to every employee. Wow. Right? That's an extra 6% cost. Yeah. My turnover rate was 3%. The average turnover ratio in a restaurant Very is 33%. Yeah. Right? So I'm able to quantify how much money that literally saves. Right. So there's certain business models that I will use no matter if you're the New York Stock Exchange, right? No matter if you're a chain of restaurants, no matter if you're a credit repair company, an IT company, there's there's this there's this bond of let people do what they do and let them run with it. If they hold them responsible for their profit and loss statement, hold them responsible, give them a chance to mess up. And if they mess up more than once or twice, and you need to remove them, maybe it's not. So you need to remove people immediately. People say, oh, that sounds mean. You're actually doing them a favor, right? By moving them on to something that they could do better. So, so by treating the employees like that with respect. I'll give you another example. My, my, uh, they called her my second wife because we were attached at the hip. <laughs> After we got to 7,000 employees, I had to have levels of people. Her name was Lauren. I met Lauren in the gym in Jacksonville, Florida, and I hired Lauren not to be a data entry person. When she came in as a data entry person, she was the worst in the world, right? I told you everybody was doing 1147 files. She was doing about 100. So I brought her into my office to fire her. And I said to her, Lauren, I said, if you could do anything and you didn't have to worry about money, what would it be? And she says, I would just organize people's lives. And I'm like, oh my God. Do I need that? I mean, at that time, I think we had a thousand employees. Everybody wanted a piece of me and I needed a go between. I'm like, you're hired. And she stayed with me for 15 years. I gave her stock options. When we sold the company, she's a millionaire now and she helps kids. She's, she's absolutely awesome. So what I found out is how do I not lose another Lauren? So I started giving these psychological tests. And when I gave it to Lauren, it says never have her do data entry. Ever, 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 right? It's like never have Doug sit in a cockpit for nine hours and fly west. Just like never do that. And so by doing these these steps, these procedures that I have for each company, no matter if it's a restaurant or it's a New York Stock Exchange, it just seems to work, right? It, it's it's based in in, in ancient types of of um, analogies and analyses that I use, and it and it and it works. How did you weather the Great Recession? Boy, that, I'll tell you, that was tough. So I went 50, almost, almost 50, I lost 50% of my distribution model at Credit Justice Services. So at that time, Credit Justice Services was the big company in my portfolio. It was doing probably somewhere about a little under 20 million top line revenue. The bottom line that I was taking away was 15%. So it was a lot, right? So we were, it, was the cash, it was the cash cow. My distribution model was mortgage brokers. What happened to the mortgage brokers in 2008? They all went away. Yeah. What happened to the government came back with regulations says Bank of America is going to take care of this stuff. And, and Citibank is going to take care of this stuff. And, you know, the independent mortgage broker was gone. So now I'm sitting at my desk 
within probably eight months, I lost a little over 60% of top line revenue. I still have some mortgage brokers. Uh, I'm not laying off anybody. And this is, this is a thing that I want your people to hear. I'm so proud of my employees. The girls that came to me, we had an office in Jacksonville. They all came to me. They said, we see the numbers because I showed everybody the numbers. I never hid numbers ever. Everybody knows what I make. Everybody knows what I pay, right? And they said, um, we see you're taking a hit. We see you haven't paid yourself in eight months and we don't want anyone to be laid off. So what we're going to do is we're going to go from 40 hours a week down to 30 hours a week, keep the pay the same. I started crying. I mean, think about that with their employees. That lasted another three years until we came up with a concept. And this was the concept. Something good always comes out of something bad. So I'm speaking with an attorney friend of mine, Robert Peters out of Jacksonville, Florida. He's a great guy. And I said, Robert, what, what's the biggest problem you're having? He goes, I got too much business. He was a bankruptcy attorney, right? 2008, 2010, he's, yeah. he's slammed. What's the first question? And I don't know why I asked him this question. I said, what's the first question that people ask you when they come in? He says, what's going to happen to my credit score? I said, how would you like to give him an answer? And he goes, well, how would I do that? So I said, this is what we're going to do. You're going to charge $1,500 for bankruptcy. What do you do after that? He says, that's it. I said, how would you like to take that $1,500 and times it by three? He's like, how are you going to do that? So I said, you get the bankruptcy. Now their credit's shot. You get another $1,500 for using my software to clean up their credit. Then what's going to happen is the credit bureaus are going to mess up. The credit bureaus always mess up. So you're gonna sue the credit bureaus for another $1,500 for each mess up because my software will tell you when they messed up, when they didn't answer appropriately, and what law they broke. So now you have 1,500 bankrupt, 1,500 credit repair cleaning, and 1,500 suing. Are you interested? He was like, are you kidding me? And he got me in front of the, the Bar Association in um, of Florida, from Florida. I went to Georgia, Georgia, and then we went to 47 states and just became huge again. That's awesome. So. You mentioned that uh, you, you published, at least internally, uh, your salaries for everybody in the company. What, uh, what value do you see? In, that's really uncommon. What value do you see in uh, salary transparency? So one of the commonalities of my companies is that I will either pay market rate or I'll pay less than market rate. And why do I do that? Because cash burn decreases. But I give you a massive upside, right, on profits. Let's use an example of the restaurant. On a restaurant, an Italian casual fine dining, which I was, or even you know Wild Wing Cafe. So your your beer cost should be 19%, your liquor cost should be 24%, your wine cost should be about 32%, your food cost should be anywhere between, for a wing place, 28 to 30, for an upscale Italian restaurant, I think it was 29 to 34. So I come up with parameters for the back of the house, chef, and a sous chef, the assistant chef, in the front of the house, general manager and manager. Because one thing I'm very sure of, I'm gonna create a mousetrap, but I'm not gonna run the day-to-day operations of the mousetrap. I'm just gonna follow the numbers and I'm gonna hold people accountable. So I say to them, I will pay you X dollars a year, but I will give you this bonus if you keep these numbers here. I will give you a bigger bonus if you keep it here. I'll give you a fantastic stupid bonus if you keep it here, right? So now what's happening? If anybody steals, they steal from them. They're not stealing from me. I'm always going to get my piece, all right? I am the free market, bad capitalist guy. I'm always getting my piece. How big is the piece do you desire is what you want to do? I'm going to give it to you. In order to do that, I must educate you on how the numbers work. I take it one step further. I just don't show them how to read 
a profit and loss statement. I show them how to read a balance sheet so they know the health of the company and a cash flow statement, which most people don't even know what a cash flow statement is. So when I educate them on that, they are animals when it comes to tearing apart. So like on the 30th of the month, they're like, okay, are the numbers balanced yet? Are the numbers balanced yet? Are the numbers balanced yet? Because they all want to get the numbers to see the money that they're going to make. So most of my general managers and managers make more money on a bonus structure, which is taxed at a different rate than they do on their W-2 payroll. So if something happens like a 2001, September 11th of 2008, when the bonuses start coming down, they still have a livable wage, but my cash flow doesn't change. So I'm able to survive when my competition is going out. So I get to hold on longer than them, then I get to buy my competition, and then I get pennies on the dollar, and then I get to expand. Make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so in one of your blog posts, uh, you wrote that you hated your first career as a pilot, but uh, you did it for practically two decades. So what Don't kind tell of, Donald that. What, what kept you going all that time? <laughs> Oh my God, I did. So uh, I did say that. <clears throat> you know, my friends are great. They they really are. They're they're all seven six captains. We're fifty eight. We're senior senior pukes on the airlines. Um, <laughs> is that the uh, technical term? Senior yeah, pukes. Yeah, right. It was. So this is. So I'm going to tell you all something, and I tell my students this at the end of every class uh, when they're about ready to leave. I said, the day you start working to make money is the day life gets really bad. The day you do what you love is you'll never work a day in your life. And that has been true to me since I've been 42 years old. I have not worked a day in my life. I love this. I love uh, the entrepreneur stuff that, that Donald was showing me here uh, and uh, what he was telling me about uh, when we were on Wall Street together. I, I love being able to just get up and go, right? Yeah, I, I don't have to answer anybody, I'm gone. Uh, I'll meet you in two weeks or a week. I'll come back next Thursday for a party or whatever. When you have a schedule and you're flying whether it's on the 7.6 or the dash eight or the 7.3, it's um, you sit there. And in the ops manual, you're not allowed to really read, mm -hmm. right? I'll tell you, I read a lot. So I don't care what they do to me. You were now as American. Um, and I would always read the Wall Street Journal and everybody was reading Flying Magazine. And we just sit there for hours and hours. And it was just like, ah, uh, it was brutal. It was, it was brutal for me. It was, and it was the same thing over. Now, Granted, right? You're landing in LaGuardia, everyone's screaming, blowing snow, 200 and a half. That's cool, right? Yeah. You, you, the autopilot's kicked off, your glasses are on sideways, you're going like this. But that happens, what, once every year, twice every, you know what I mean? Yeah. The rest of the thousand hours you fly that year, or 800 hours, it's just up, down, up, down, up, down. And it's, it's just a very, to me, to me, it's very boring. So when I did my first deal with AT&T and I'm in there and I'm learning how to evaluate companies and I'm, I'm learning about my Excel spreadsheets and I'm, and I'm negotiating back and forth and I'm talking to attorneys and I'm talking to accountants, man, that, I was on fire. I was on fire. Having said that, I learned all those negotiation skills from, from negotiating the 1994 contract with Piedmont. Right. Mm -hmm. So I learned from the Airline Policy Association. So I learned a lot of negotiating skills. I also learned by looking at the union and I love my union brothers uh, looking at the union and looking at management that they're both they were both idiots. Right. We had this great thing going on 
And as I call the company as the baby and they're destroying the baby, everyone's peeling at the baby. Feed the baby first and the baby will feed you, right? Always take care of the company first and the company will take care of the employees. Everything will work out. In unions, from, my, from what I've learned over the years, and in management, they don't do that. They watch out for themselves and the product goes down and people hate each other and you know it gets, it gets disastrous. So flying was just, um, it was just for me, it was just godly boring. And I, I really, it wasn't, it wasn't very thought provoking. I mean, we, of course we make people think that we're like these super genius rocket scientists, but it's the most rote thing. And you're gonna have the same six instruments if you're on you know, a, a, a little single engine plane or if you're on a seven, six, seven, five, they're, they're the same. There may be EFIS now, but do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And so it's just, it was just, I didn't like it. So do you still fly at all for your for pleasure? So that's that, that's a good question. I uh, three years ago, I was traveling a lot and I was like, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to get a plane. So I bought a, a P210 pressurized 210 six seater. It was awesome. And I went out and I got checked out. <laughs> that was a disaster. The, the instrument part was awesome. I got it. Um, you all have these, um, I, uh, they were just coming in. We were still using Jepsons. You all had these, um, um, iPads that dude, that's cheating. That's, <laughs> you know, I, I went into the, I went into the building yesterday, uh, where you do your flight plans. There was no one doing maps and flight plans. Like I used to do in weather reports, they were all walking around with these computers. So I'm like, that's cheating. But anyway, so I thought it was really cool. I remember the first day I walked into class. Uh, for the P210 class, because I, I really wanted to do this right. Uh, and I got a, I got a you know, few type ratings, I'm, I, I, about 18,000 hours. So I had my US Air flight bag. <laughs> They're like, dude, what's that? And they gave me an iPad. And so it was great. I, I, I enjoyed it. I'd be able to see my son who was going to law school in uh, South Carolina, my other son that was in Kentucky, uh, who's doing really well. And then one day, my wife and I were flying from Charlottesville to Poconos to have a cheesy weekend, I call it. You know, they have the, the champagne bathtubs. It was really cool. And we got in it, and I was at 16,000 feet, and the engine blew up. The turbocharger went right through the engine. And, of course, I was on an IFR flight plan. I didn't fly VFR. And I hit the clouds about 16, bounced out about 9, and I was, I was a glider. And I was going to ditch it. And I was just like, what am I doing? And uh, Washington Control said, hey, Cessna, there's an there's a airport off to your left. And this is where the Embry-Riddle education comes in. And I'm, I'm dead serious about this. I learned back here in real world, real, in, in educational world, safe environment, how to do a best glide path ratio to find out how many miles you are on the ground, right? You have a glide path. And I did that. I, I did that. It came back to me. I did the math. I'm like, hey, I can make it. And I made it. I made the airport. I actually I had to circle around it and lose some altitude and come down. And we landed and the engine blew up and there was oil everywhere. My wife gets out of the plane. She's throwing up. I'm kicking it because I'm mad. So, so the answer to your question is yes, I did fly. The answer to your question is I won't fly again. Unless, unless I have two engines, you know, like a King Air. And we're, we're looking at something like that because um, we're, we've been traveling a lot. Okay. Uh, so, well, it's, uh, it's time for our lightning round. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm going to give you five questions, and uh, we're going to have five answers, and hopefully this will go pretty fast. So are you ready? Yes. All right. Uh, if you could fly uh, any plane ever made from anywhere to anywhere, what would it be? Uh, yeah, lightning round, right? Yeah. Um, I, I'd, I'd like to try out uh, the 787. Yeah. 
Yeah, the, the 777-787, we're not there yet. And uh, I would like to fly to Dubai. Yeah, oh, that's a long flight. Yeah. That's a pretty awesome yeah. place to go. But I have all too. my friends in the back. Ah, yeah, yeah. All your uh, pilot friends or finance friends? Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I only have finance friends. Uh, probably a few pilot friends I still have, right? Yeah. My roommate, who was an F-15 driver for 28 years, Billy, Billy Bear, he's doing great. Both. I'd have both. Excellent. Uh, so if you could read only one book for the rest of your life, what would it be? So most people are going to learn this about me now. Uh, I'm a very spiritual guy, more of a, of a Buddhist type of type person. And, and you all will learn that when you hit about 32. You, you ask questions. Uh, Conversations with God, book one, is uh, a book that I read every January. And I've been doing it for 24 years. So it's my favorite book, Conversations with God. Right. Yeah. Uh, who's your favorite cartoon character of all time? Bugs Bunny. Yeah. How, how fast did I answer that one? Yeah, that's good. But yeah, Bugs yeah. is my man. Why? Because he's got a New York accent. Oh, that's fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, picture in your mind uh, your ideal grilled cheese sandwich. What's in it? Grilled cheese sandwich is sourdough, cheddar cheese, and thick hickory bacon. That's perfect. Just made it. Yeah. <laughs> right on. Okay, if you could live for a week as uh, any person in history, who would it be? Thomas Jefferson. Tell me why. So being in Charlottesville, Virginia, it's Thomas Jefferson's land. Uh, he was a great thinker. He was a great man. Um, he was a libertarian like myself. He, 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 like myself, he believes that humans are good people. And the 1% that are not good, we could do something with them. But the 99% are very giving. Americans are very, very giving. I, I, I have companies now in, in, in Calcutta, India. I have one in Malmo, uh, Sweden, uh, which is a socialist country. And in America, and there's nothing better than America. And he was a great, great American citizen. He was spiritual in his own way. Uh, he re he, he rewrote uh, the uh, the Bible in kind of a in a way that people can understand it and what he thought it meant. Um, he was a very very caring man, but he believed that if we left everybody alone, that we would inherently do good. And um, you know, it was it was a tough time, right? Uh, he did say all men were created equal. Yet, yet he did have slaves, and, and there's, uh, there's a problem with that in the University of Virginia, which I'm very saddened about. But um, it, back in his time, he, it, it broke his heart. He, he was a great, he was just a, he was a great man, and I love him to death. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Douglas, for uh, joining us today. Absolutely. And, you know, congratulations uh, to all your success here at, at Embry-Riddle, and I hope to, to be a part of it really soon. I'll, I'll never leave you again for 35 years, um, and if you all ever need me to do a speech or to say anything, I'm, I'm one flight away, and I, I'd, be, I'd be honored to come down. Excellent. It's yes, good sir. to have you back. Yes, sir. Thank all you. All right. Uh, the Talent Talks podcast is a production of Wicked Radio and the Embry-Riddle Office of Alumni Engagement. We're coming at you from the Maury Hosseini Student Union at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in sunny Daytona Beach, Florida. Thanks for downloading us. We'll see you next time.